really sorry about that, guys. Yeah. Youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> All right. Um, tonight's Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 6. Um, yeah, verses 1. Great Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip... Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. St. Stephen suffered the next in order. His death was occasioned by the faithful manner in which he preached the gospel to the betrayers and murderers of Christ. To such a degree of madness were they excited that they cast him out of the city and stoned him to death. The time when he suffered is generally supposed to have been at the Passover, which succeeded to that of our Lord's crucifixion and to the era of his ascension in the following spring. Upon this, a great persecution was raised against all who professed their belief in Christ as the Messiah or as a prophet. We are immediately told by St. Luke that there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem and at They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the Apostles. About 2,000 Christians, with Nicanor, one of the seven deacons, suffered martyrdom during the persecution that rose about Stephen. Hello, my name is Shane and welcome to our new series called Alive and sadly throughout the day today we've been having a few tech gremlins so hopefully the screens will behave themselves for the rest of the time 
and hopefully that's not going to get in our way of meeting with each other and meeting with God. It's been good so far, so screens, keep doing the thing you got to do. The story you just heard, <clears throat> firstly from the scriptures and then from a book called Fox's Book of the Masters, was a story of a man called Stephen who laid down his life, who was willing to be martyred, that is, to be killed for his faith. You might say, why would we do that in a series called Alive? Well, each week we're going to introduce you to a different passage of Scripture that calls us to weigh things up and a different story of someone who decided that Jesus was worth laying down their life for. Let me tell you how this came into my head, why I thought it would be a good thing for us to do this. See, for about two years now, We've been making decisions together, probably for longer than that, but specifically for two years, there's been some decisions we've had to ponder and think through. And last year, I was reflecting upon some of those decisions, and I thought, you know, whenever you're making decisions, I mean, the decisions I was making along with the ministry team were things like, okay, are we going to be able to gather church or not gather church? If we do gather church, do we have to clean the seats? Remember cleaning the seats? Ah, I miss those good old days. Uh, cleaning the seats or not cleaning the seats, do we have to wear masks? And then there'd be a new rule that would come out, and you're like, why did they do that? If they do that, it means you can't do this. And if you can do that, then it means you can't. And it was all these decisions to make. But that's what it's like when you're making decisions, right? Whenever it comes time to make a decision, you find that life is not like Netflix. You know, Netflix, you just watch it when you want to watch it. Just stream it. And if you're me, you frustrate your whole family because you're always saying, wait, can we rewind? Because you're watching, looking at your phone and playing on your laptop at the same time and saying, I am paying attention. And everyone realises that you're not. But in real life, it doesn't always work like that. In real life, we find ourselves making decisions and pondering decisions. And we've all had to do this for a while as we've worked out how to live under COVID and all that sort of thing. Where you wrestle out stuff. And you bring two good things together and you contrast them or different values and you, you measure them against one another and you try and work out which is the one I want to protect, which is the one I want to guard. But you know it's hard. Values and goods don't always play fair with each other. If you've ever been in a school debate, each team gets equal time, equal space on the platform to plead their case. It doesn't work like that with goods and values. They don't all get to speak in the same way. Think about it like this. Some good things, some things we value are physical and they're visible. They're urgent and they're now. And they're loud and they're clear. Now sometimes those values go up against different values that are, well, they're real but they're unseen. And they're important and enduring. They're quiet and they're concealed. And it's like two debate teams who don't get equal platform time, don't get to put their argument across, but nonetheless, as you make a decision, you've got to butt one up against the other. And so the question that I think a number of us have asked over the last two years at least is how do I guard my life? Because I don't want to get that thing. But if I don't go anywhere, I'm going to miss out. How do I guard my life? How do I nurture my life? How do I have a good life? What even is it to be alive? What is the good thing, the highest good thing that I want to guard and give myself to, even if it means I miss out on something else? And here's my my big idea tonight for you. 
True life, being alive, is a gift that is received from a faith that is neither distracted or deterred. Okay, here it is. True life is a gift that you receive from a faith that is neither distracted, that is, it doesn't lose its way, nor is it deterred. It can't be stopped. Let me talk to you about distractions as we jump into Act 6. My hunch is, and I heard this a little bit as Al, the 63-year-old old guy who's making me feel youthful at 43. Um, I just got old again. Um, we're not bad at focusing on good things and not getting distracted by bad things, right? So someone says, look, focus on Jesus. You go, right, and focus on Jesus. And sometimes bad things come along that could take your focus off Jesus, right? Like immoral stuff. So you find yourself in a pornographic website and you're like, whoa, what am I even doing, Lord? This is not the space I'm meant to be in. This is bad stuff. Pull back, focus on Jesus. You find yourself being greedy and you're like, this is not God's plan for me. Pull back, focus on Jesus. Maybe I get up and start teaching you about a false god. You go, whoa, pull back, change churches. We don't do false gods here. We're not bad at not being distracted when bad things come along. But here's the challenge. Not being distracted when good things come along. Because some people have said that the good can be the enemy of the great. A guy called Tim Keller said, idolatry, that is false gods, that happens when good things become ultimate things. How do we go not getting distracted by good things? Well, Acts 6 has something to teach us about that. In Acts 6, you got the thing every pastor wants to see, a growing church. Hooray! Good news story. But here's the thing that happens when churches get larger. Because I've been blessed by God to walk in, work in little bitty tiny churches and some pretty large churches as well. And often when I talk to people and leaders in smaller churches, they might say things to me like, wow, it must be great to be in a big church because you've got all these resources and wonderful things and there's a vibe and energy. And I go, it truly is. One of the hard things that drains your heart is that there's always someone who is dying. There is always a marriage that's in trouble. There's always a leader who needs to redirect their ministry upon themselves because their life is not in accordance with their call. There's always someone new to recruit. There's always more vision than you can possibly do at one time and you thank God for all the different ideas, but there's so much energy in saying, well, we're going to stay on this course. It's tricky, and that's what this community found. As God was blessing them and growing the church in Acts, they got bigger and bigger, but they got complex. And the complexity comes, as we read in the beginning of Acts chapter 6, when there's a problem over food distribution. Now, this is tricky. Let me try and paint this picture for you. You've got cultural tension at this point, because there's a debate and a complaint going on between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. Now, you might go, big deal. This is not just like state of origin football. 
This is a Jewish people who are always called to be separate and holy. Now, when you're a Hebraic Jew, that is someone who speaks Hebrew, old school, kind of conservative, and you look across and you see a Hellenistic Jew, someone who now speaks Greek, the prominent language of the nations, got into some of the customs, maybe dresses like them, maybe eats like them, maybe does different things, you start to go, hmm, looking pretty Greek there. Have you sold out on who we are? And you're like, hey, bro, lighten up a little. Like, you know, we're still Jews. We're just living it. And so there's a cultural tension. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that cultural tension can make things tricky. And within this cultural tension, there's an issue around widows. And widows are named throughout the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. And some have called them members of the quartet of the vulnerable. These are people who God's got a particular heart for, a quartet of vulnerable. I think it's uh, widows, the fatherless, refugees, and the poor. And God, throughout the Old Testament, consistently has um, commands and instructions for his people to make sure they're looking after the quartet of the vulnerable. So here within cultural tension, you've got a specifically vulnerable group who God's very much aware of, so the spotlight's on it. And what's the problem? They haven't got food. There's a problem with the food distribution. And like Snickers said, you're not yourself when you're hungry. So you got tension, not even a chuckle, not even from the front row. Thanks for nothing. Um, tension, spotlighted people who are hangry. That's high stakes kind of stuff that's going on in a brand new church. It's a brand new church. They don't have years and years of, oh, this is what we've always done. They've got to figure it out. They've got to figure it out. They've got competing good things. And the apostles, the 12, name it. Look at Acts 2 with me. Please screen work. Yes. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God to wait on tables. They name it. We've got a problem here. We see this good, 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 important issue of this social welfare of making sure people have food. But if we give ourselves to that, something's going to go wrong with our call to be centred on prayer and the word. And so what do they do? Well, first of all, they name the issue that they have. We are competing goods here. We understand that these competing goods can affect one another. If you do one, it's going to have a problem on the other one. We're going to have to prioritise. Now, prior making a priority is fine, until it means that you've got to lay something else down. Until it means I'm clicking yes on this invite, which means I won't be at your party because I'll be at this one. I've prioritised. Well, the 12 prioritise in Acts chapter 3. Screen, go! Yes! Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. What the 12 do at this point is they acknowledge and name that this social welfare project of feeding these widows is a good, 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 godlike thing to be doing. But it's not the central thing to be doing. The leaders of this church, these 12, these apostles say, we will delegate this because it's a good, 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 good thing to be doing, a godlike thing to be doing. 
but we cannot be distracted from the ultimate thing to be doing. And the apostles say the ultimate thing for us to place at the center of God's church, at the center of our lives, is the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. Because it's by prayer and by the word that God makes himself known. It's by prayer and by the word that God's people commune or meets with God. And the most important thing a human being can do, the most important thing God's church can do, is to meet with God. Amongst the many, many, many things that you could do that are good, 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 good and God-like, the greatest thing you can do is meet with Jesus, is to be focused on Jesus. And so they say, we will give our attention to the prayer and word. Let that sink in. Surely that feels a little weird. It feels weird to me. I feel like someone wants to say, Shane, are you sure? I'm just reading the scriptures as they unfold. Because here are some leaders who are saying, we know there are hungry people. We know this is a really, really important, good thing to do. They probably know that when they say, we're going to pray, there are hungry people outside, we're going to be praying, we will send someone to help. There are hungry people, we're going to be studying the scriptures, meeting with Jesus, we will try to help. Our first priority, you're going to do what? It almost sounds like when someone goes nuts with a firearm in the States, and the government says, thoughts and prayers with you, and you think, thoughts and prayers, you're going to do more than that? But it's not just thoughts and prayers with you. It's the greatest thing a human can do at the center of Christ's church must always be Christ. You see how it's tricky? It's easy to not, what's well, somewhat easy to not get distracted by bad things and stay focused on God. It's really tricky sometimes to not let good things become ultimate things, and Christ is the ultimate thing. Hearing God's word, meeting with God, and speaking with God has always and will always be the central concern of God's people, the central concern of humanity. It's been like that since the beginning. There was a formless, shapeless mass. What happened? God spoke. By his word, there was creation. God gathered a people to his, be his own. They were called the Israelites. They were given 10 words or 10 commandments. But in particular, every day, there was something that was said amongst the community of Israel. It's called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. What is the fundal command that was given, fundamental command given to these people? How do you apply Deuteronomy 6.4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Here, listen, give attention to your Lord who speaks for he is present in his word. We studied 1 Samuel together last year and we saw that God led his people through prophets, priests, kings, and kings had a big role of gathering people, governing people, making people get fed, fighting wars, keeping off um, <coughs> baddies and all this sort of stuff. But even the king was submissive to the prophet, the one who says, thus says the Lord, this is what God is saying. The word was always at the center because God is present in his word. The apostles were sent to announce God's word. When Jesus came, John's gospel tells us the word 
became flesh and dwelt among us because God is present in his word. So can you believe, will you believe, will you commit with me that amongst this good, 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 good and God-like good thing to help others around us, God's people and God's church have no higher priority if, as we do in some of our other services, say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, that means our church is based on the model of the apostles, then the word and prayer is the centre and the highest priority we have because that is where we meet with Jesus. And that's why our mission is to build a community of grace committed to making disciples of Jesus. In summary, it's Jesus for everyone, man. Jesus for everyone. We have no higher good. Do not be distracted. J. Oswald Sanders said, ministry is what we leave in our wheel tracks when we're following Jesus. You follow after Jesus and you find yourself tending to attend to these good things, but Jesus becomes ultimate. The reverse is also true. If ministry is what we leave in our wheel tracks, like our tire treads when we're following Jesus, my fear is when we're following ministry, Jesus can get left behind. And so if someone was to say to you, hey, tell me about your Christian life, make sure that your testimony talks a lot about how you met Jesus, how you know Jesus, not just the good, 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 God-like things that you do for Jesus. They are good, good things, but they are not the ultimate thing. Jesus is the ultimate thing. To quote Reverend Dr. Stephen Abbott, Spend more time being impressed by Jesus than trying to impress Jesus. That's Steve's summary of the Mary Martha story, if you know it. So don't be distracted, and equally, don't be deterred. Now this guy, Stephen, Stephen who is selected to be one of the food distributors, he is a man who is never distracted. I wonder if you notice that Stephen is a guy, though he's given this ministry of being part of the movement of helping the good, 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 God-like ministry of feeding these widows, he stays word-centric. This is a guy who doesn't get in trouble for feeding people. He gets in trouble because he can't close his mouth about Jesus. Verse 8 tells us, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Understand how powers, wonders and signs work in the book of Acts. From Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says to the apostles, Hey, my spirit will come upon you and you'll be clothed in power. And what will that cause you to do? To be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Power in Acts is about testifying to Jesus. What about the wonders and signs? Well, there was a guy in Acts who says, hey, teach me how to do the wonders and signs. That would be sick. And the apostles say, get lost, bro. We're not about wonders and signs. The wonders and signs are confirmation that the messenger's message is true. What verse 8 is telling us is Jesus is a... Jesus. Stephen is a guy who went out and as he was waiting on tables, kept talking Jesus. Kept focused on Jesus, never distracted. Stephen is probably most famous because not only was he never distracted, he was never deterred. Acts 6.11, let's go to the screen. 
Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. These are the people who accuse him. And he might go, oh, that's not nice that they said he was speaking blasphemy. They were saying, we think there's grounds that this guy should be killed for what he's doing because that's the punishment for blasphemy in this community. They said, hey, this guy should probably get killed for what he's doing. Stephen now has to work out what's my highest good. What's my highest good? Is it my life or is it my faith in Jesus that makes me truly alive? Is it worth the risk or do I go with Jesus? He's got competing goods. For Stephen, though this accusation was against him, he decided Jesus was too good, too big to walk away from. As he compared the bigness of being alive and the bigness of following Jesus, he said, Jesus is bigger. Now I'm running short on time, but I just want to jump into verse 15. Thanks, Ethan, because everyone's wondering what this means. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I, I couldn't leave that without explaining that to you. What does that even mean? Um, I don't think it means that they looked at Stephen and went, whoa, dude's hot. This is not what's going on. What do angels even look like? I don't know if angels are attractive. I know that they're glorious and true messengers of God. I think what we have here is Luke, the author, saying to us, when they looked at Stephen, despite their accusations, despite them trying to distort his testimony, they saw a man, a man whose appearance was like that of the true messenger of God radiating God's glory because he was speaking God's true word. Why was he speaking God's true word even in the wake of being killed? Because for him, Jesus was too big to walk away from. And here's what I make of that. For Stephen, Jesus is so big, he's big enough to die for. But it also means for Stephen and for us, Jesus is big enough to live for. You see, if we want to say like Stephen, hey, Jesus is so big, I'd lay down my life for him. Jesus is so big because I heard that true life comes from a faith that won't be distracted or deterred. And my faith won't be deterred. Jesus is too big. I'm all about Jesus. I'd lay down my life. Then let us be people who live like Jesus is bigger than any other thing. And here's where it challenged me as someone who's studied theology and likes to be critical sometimes. There are Christians and there are churches who I have enormous, massive disagreements with doctrinally. but they love Jesus. There are people over the years and into the future who I will fall out with, but they love Jesus. And now for me and for you, I've got to make a decision. Is my Jesus so big that I would lay down my life to follow him? Is my Jesus so big that though I might rightly and hotly debate theology with you. If you're united with Jesus, and I'm united with Jesus, though we have this debate, I will always call you brother or sister. And I'll always treat you with the honour of someone who is owned by Jesus. And though we've fallen out over that issue, that problem, that thing, and I might still think you're not quite right, and you might still think I'm not quite right, can I call you brother or sister because my Jesus is bigger.
Man, I love the story of Stephen. Because here is the basics taught to us once again. What is true life? It's not about just keeping my vital signs going. True life is about a faith that is focused on Christ. It's not distracted by the bad things. It's not distracted by the good things. It focuses on the great thing. And when someone comes against me and says, no more Jesus, I will take your life, I say there is nothing more precious to me than him because he leads me into the good things and he leads me into true life. I hope this series will bless us over the next few weeks as we continue to weigh things up and see how there is something much more to life than simply having vital signs. Let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. And Father, hear our prayer as we thank you for those, for those 12 and those who walked in their footsteps, who preserved the message of Jesus, who preserved your word, who spoke your gospel, who prayerfully and dependently came to you and continued to place you at the centre. Oh, Father God, it's wonderful that you have placed so many good, 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 wonderful, good things and good works that you have prepared ahead of time for us to do. But may we never be confused. May we always place Jesus at the center of our lives. For everyone here who calls on the name of Jesus, may we be prayerfully dependent without, with, without any kind of negotiation about that. May we be people who are studying the scriptures and in the word without turning away from that at any point. May that be center, that Jesus might remain center, that meeting with him may be center. Father God, by your Holy Spirit, protect us from distraction and keep us walking straight with Jesus. Father God, we've had a pretty charmed life. There aren't a lot of people who want to hurt us for our faith. That may not always be the case. But Father God, sometimes there are things that would be hurdles and would hold us back from walking towards Jesus. We pray that our faith would never be distracted and never be deterred. Help us to have a huge, large Jesus who we just can't see past. And in our huge, large Jesus, may we find amazing unity even with those who frustrate us, even those with whom we have disagreements. May we debate and debate strongly because our Jesus is important. But may we never lose the union we have with one another because of the union we have with a great big Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory, for he is the centre of his church. Amen.